Gracious God, we come to you as a grateful people. We are grateful for the saving work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are thankful that we can gather together and to celebrate your finished and accomplished work. You are a God who saves. You're a God who sees us in our sinfulness and our alienation from you, a holy God. In spite of where we've been and what we've done and what we've thought, you have loved us still. You've loved us enough that you would send your only begotten Son that whosoever believes in you shall not perish but have everlasting life. So we celebrate that you are a God who saves and that you have told us this, not only the songs that we've been able to lift our voices to sing together in praise, but in your word, a word that continues to speak to our hearts. So we, your people, are listening. Speak, Lord Jesus, to our hearts this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, Dawson. It's good to see you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to encourage you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Would you... Join me in thanking our choir and instrumentalist and Linda and Brent uh, and um, Brent for leading us so beautifully this morning. Will you join me? I get to experience this three three times, and it is it is a joy, choir, really, to to be led by you. So thank you for leading us so beautifully this morning. I wonder this Sunday prior to Thanksgiving what you might be bringing to Thanksgiving. What are you bringing to Thanksgiving? Where are you going for Thanksgiving? We're going westward, not too far west, one state over to Mississippi. We'll have four Thanksgiving celebrations that we will enjoy that, law, uh, that uh, we have a, a semblance of coordination that goes into it to make sure the right dishes around the right table at the right time. And uh, I, I say we rather loosely. Danielle sort of prepares those dishes and the guys carry them in is really our, <laughs> our level of participation in that. But we, we enjoy that. We, we will come back. And we will all have gained a lot of weight, and we will all uh, be one belt buckle looser maybe by next Sunday. So we are thankful. We are thankful for Thanksgiving. We're thankful for the opportunity to gather together for Thanksgiving. But I I do wonder what, what you are bringing to Thanksgiving. You know, it's interesting when you read through God's Word, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we this Sunday, the Sunday prior to Thanksgiving, I'm going to, as your pastor, invite us to a table, not to a table for your family per se, but your church family. Uh, the more important family, not your biological family is important, no doubt, but there will be a day in the new heaven and new earth that we will gather together with our eternal family, brothers and sisters in Christ. So do we get an appetizer this morning as we gather to the Lord's table? And there's a question in many ways, what, what are you bringing to this table this morning? 
When Paul was writing to those early Christians in Corinth, one of the things that he critiques them about is that they failed to bring thanksgiving to the table. They failed to bring thanksgiving to this table. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it reads, starting in verse 17, this critique that Paul gives to the Corinthian Christians gathering together to partake of the Lord's table. But in the fallen instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are many divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I I will not. We live in a culture that is hesitant to critique. We live in a culture that is hesitant to say something is just wrong. That, that, that I find in this practice something that is not healthy. Uh, the Apostle Paul has no hesitations to say that the way that these early Corinthian Christians are partaking of the Lord's Supper has actually exasperated divisions instead of being an instrument to provide unity. Now, how in the world could this be the case? How are factions and divisions present in the partaking of the Lord's Supper, how can he say, I I don't commend you because you come together and it is for the worse. Commentators are helpful to provide for us a little bit of the historical and the cultural context that kind of shed light on exactly what Paul's talking about here. You've got to understand 2,000 years ago in that Corinthian church gathering, they would not meet in a sanctuary like Dawson is blessed to have. I mean, that first century church community would gather in homes, homes of the wealthy. You need to understand that the first Lord's Supper meal would have been a part of a a larger gathering where their Christians would have gathered together in that homeowner's house and would have brought together with them the food that they had, the wine that they had, You have the Corinthian church that was not just the wealthy, but you had the Corinthian church that would have included those who were poverty-stricken. There there was no middle class in between, really. So you have the haves and you have the have-nots. Those first century poor Christians would come later on, most likely after they got off work. The architecture of the homes in that day would have had a central dining room that would have been able to house and seat eight to ten people. The architecture was such that there was a larger courtyard or atrium that would have been adjacent to that dining room. So this is the picture. You have uh, birds of a feather flocking together and the uh, richest Christians eating around a table, enjoying food to, to the extent that some of them might have even gotten drunk. You have the poverty-stricken, poor, lower socioeconomic status coming later after they get off work. They probably don't have provisions to bring with them for this meal. They probably aren't coming with their hands full of items. And so they get there, 
and there is this exasperation of division, it, there is a way in which they, they are reminded of, of how they're not included and how they're different from those that are inside there, a part of, of this gathering around the table. And so what Paul is saying is, is that in actuality, the Christian church should bring about unity across the diversity of, of socioeconomic status, but, but when you gather together, you're just reflecting the way that the, the visions of the community and culture are outside of the church. So John 17 is, is Jesus praying that, that they would be one, and, and there is no sense in which his kingdom is coming and his will is being done as you're exasperating these distinctions and you're exasperating these differences as you gather together to partake of the Lord's Supper. So I do not, Paul says, I do not commend you for this practice. It is a pointed historical critique. Now, in many ways, there needs to be a reminder that one of the countercultural opportunities that we as a church have is to look different from the world. So our world continues to profit off, to proliferate differences and distinctions that oftentimes give us the illusion that we cannot find unity because the differences socioeconomically, the differences racially, the differences in our past, the differences in where we're from, they exasperate to such an extent that there, there is no common ground. But this is the good news of the Christian church. That the Christian church, in spite of distinctions, in spite of differences, we come together around something that unifies us, someone who unifies us, and that is Jesus Christ. And this is one of the countercultural witnesses of this church in the 21st century and will be one of the ways that God continues to show an unbelieving world the authenticity of the experience of salvation that he, Christ Jesus, breaks down those walls of hostility that are erected in our culture at every turn. So here is Paul giving a pointed critique but he doesn't stop at the point of critique. He comes now to a commendation. A commendation of how that original Corinthian audience was to partake of the Lord's Supper, the meaning of it, and we listen in to his words, starting in verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So here we have the Apostle Paul drawing upon that first Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples that would inaugurate a greater Passover, a greater exodus. Many of you that maybe are gathering here this morning come from different faith traditions. Maybe there's some of you that grew up in a Catholic background or a Presbyterian background or a Methodist background. And it very well may be that as we take, partake of, of what we call as, as Baptist the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, there's some of you that grew up in faith traditions that would say that we're going to partake of communion this morning. Or there's some of you that grew up in faith traditions that would say we're going to partake of the Eucharist this morning. And where does that word Eucharist come from? It's, it's interesting because the word Eucharist is right here in this passage. Did you see it? 
Well, it, it is the root word that comes from the phrase, he had given thanks, Eucharistio is the word that is the stem and the root of the word that is utilized in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. The earliest Christians would pick up upon that root word. And you have someone like Justin Martyr in 150 AD. You have someone like Ignatius of Antioch in 100 AD that would talk about the Lord's Supper as the Eucharist. Now listen, I'm not here. I'm not here on a... a a mission for us to not call this the Lord's Supper and to call this Eucharist. That's not the point whatsoever. What I am trying to encourage you to do is to bring Eucharistio to your partaking of the Lord's Supper. I, I am trying to encourage you to see that the giving of thanks is implicit in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, that what you bring to this table is always to be a sense of gratitude for what he has done to invite you to this table. That we bring to us in a culture that is oftentimes a culture that parades ingratitude. Often a culture that, that profits off a frustration that we as Christians have something that unifies us. And that is our gratitude around what this bread symbolizes and what this cup symbolizes. Thanksgiving is before us. We're just a few days away before we as a nation will uh, celebrate Thanksgiving. And there's a sense in which I'm, I'm on sort of a, a low-key mission to, to just remind us that Thanksgiving is something that we don't have to so quickly pass by. There, there seems to me that there's just not a lot of room in our culture for Thanksgiving. Have, have you felt that? You give out the Halloween candy. The next morning you go to the pharmacy and Bing Crosby is wishing you a white Christmas in October. I mean, it's just so quick that we get to Christmas. Uh, Christmas decorations are all around us in November. Some of you have probably put up your Christmas tree. You've got all your Christmas lists done, and that's fine. That's dandy, each to their own. But I'm here to say that Thanksgiving can be more than just a speed bump on the freeway that we're trying to get to the destination of Christmas. That let's pause Let's just slow down and say that what can unify us in this national celebration is a sense of gratitude. That we all in this room have something to be grateful for. I know your circumstances might be difficult this Thanksgiving season. I know that it might be heightened as you come to the holidays. But even in that sense of dissonance and change in your life, you have something to be grateful for. Even if you're here today and, and your health is teetering, there's a diagnosis that you've received, you have something to be thankful for. We as believers, what unites us is no matter what comes our way, we are called to be a grateful people. Paul would say, writing to the church at Thessalonica in the fifth chapter, that it is the will of God for you to give thanks in all things. To give thanks in all things. So this morning you woke up. We can be grateful for the ability to put one foot in front of the next. We can be grateful for the ability for us to be here this morning. We can be grateful for that family member that is sitting next to you, that friend that is next to you. We can be grateful for the holiday plans, even if they weren't the holiday plans that you'd wish for. Maybe there's some transition in your family and holidays like Thanksgiving. It accentuates that you know something, you kind of lost control. You can't get everybody around the same table like you want to, but you know something, even in that place and even in that time, there's something to be thankful for.
There's something to be thankful for. And, and if you are a Christian in this room, regardless of your health, regardless of, of family, regardless of all of those things that are ultimately gifts that God gives us, Thanksgiving is a time for us to be thankful for the giver of all good gifts. And as believers, as we come this Sunday prior to Thanksgiving, what we are most thankful for is what this bread represents and what this cup represents, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. So the Apostle Paul, when he's talking about uh, communion, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, he invites us to come to the table grateful for the invitation. But, but secondly, he invites us to come to the table grateful for Christ's finished work. Notice when the Apostle Paul, in verses 23 through 25, is talking about the positive commendation of what the Lord's Supper means in opposition and in contrast to how they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. Notice that he takes us back. He takes us back to that Passover meal that Jesus has there in the, what we know to be the Last Supper, there to be in the upper room. And so here we have the Jewish Messiah with his Jewish disciples partaking of the Passover meal, which they had partaken of previously to this, an event that pointed them back to their people's exodus. The nation of Israel, as they were in bondage and in slavery to the cruel, tyrannical rule of Pharaoh, they're in Egypt for over 400 years. And so God sends plagues to get the attention of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh had a short attention span. God would get his attention, but Pharaoh would go back to his cruel and inhumane treatment of the Israelites. And so the greatest of the plagues, the culmination of the plagues, was the angel of death swooping down into the empire of Egypt. And the firstborn child of each family would die that evening unless... Unless, as God commands the Israelites, take an unblemished lamb, slaughter that lamb, take the blood that drips from this sacrifice, and I want you to splatter it upon the doorpost. And as the angel of death comes upon the home, and if there is blood that is covering your home, the angel of death will pass over that home. So we read about this in Exodus chapter 12. God sets his people free. And so these original disciples are looking back to that Exodus event. Jesus Christ, he partakes of that Exodus event, but he is, he is signifying that it never again will just be that Exodus, but there is a new Exodus that we as Christians are going to partake of. So as he shows them the wine, and as they partake of that, that wine there, that cup represents, what does it represent? It represents the blood of Jesus Christ. That without the shedding of blood, there'd be no remission of sins. What does the bread represent? It, it represents that, that he will be the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of all who would trust in him. That blood will be his blood in just a few hours. That bread will be representative of his body that will be nailed to a cruel and coarse Roman cross. So this isn't just hypothetical. This is him pointing back to that old Exodus saying, I'm the new Exodus. He is pointing back to that Passover and he's saying, I am the new Passover. And so as those original disciples partake of that Passover meal, there is an invitation in many ways for them to be able to look forward to the finished work of the gospel. Now we look back 
Understanding that, that never again do we, do we see the cup and the bread just through Old Testament eyes, but we see it through the lens of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And this cup that we partake of is a cup that symbolizes and it signifies his blood that was shed for you and for me. The bread that, is, that you will partake of is a symbol of his body that was physically buried for you was physically raised for you and for me. So this isn't a fairy tale. There's a sense in which that we as Christians always need to be reminded of the tangible nature of our faith. This isn't a story that we just read. This isn't just something that, that grounds us as a fairy tale, but rather this is an actual event. There really was real blood and there really was a real death. And we hold this bread, we hold this cup. It's a reminder to us that there are physical expressions that purchased your salvation, purchased my salvation. So here we are as Christians being reminded that we come to the table grateful for Christ finished work. But finally this morning, there's a sense when we come to this table, we come to this table grateful for the anticipated return of Christ. Notice verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 11. Notice how Paul moves from looking back to looking ahead. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we're invited to this table this morning this Sunday prior to Thanksgiving. And it is a way in which we are looking forward to a far greater table. That, that this table invites us to be reminded as we partake of this earthly meal that, that rather it is an appetizer for an eternal meal that we're going to enjoy in the new heavens and the new earth around that table that will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. You will gather around a table on Thursday we're gathered around the Lord's table this Sunday. But when we get to heaven, we're going to be gathered around this far greater table that isn't first and foremost our earthly family, but rather our eternal family. It's a family that's going to have every tribe and nation and tongue and language that is represented around it. You're going to look to your left, and there you're going to see your brother in Christ that you've never met, and he's from Argentina or Algeria. And you're going to look to your right, and there you're going to meet your sister in Christ that you've never met from Belgium or Belize or Bangladesh. And the diversity of languages and the diversity of places all is brought together around the same table, worshiping forever the risen Lord and Savior. We will feast with him in that new Jerusalem. And it is going to be a victorious, celebratory meal. Think, think in your life. Think in your life of the, the meals that had this emotional resonance with you. Think in your life of the, the meals that you can just remember and that you enjoyed. They're, they're most often connected to some sense of victory. Your team won the pennant. Your team won the tournament. And then you went out to eat. You got the promotion. Family and friends, they went out to eat to celebrate. You finished the graduate program, your family and friends, you went out to celebrate. I've had the great joy of being a part of my boys' sporting lives, and they've had degrees, varying degrees of success, but there's some times where they're on a team, and that team wins the tournament, and you go out, and everybody gets pizza, and that pizza tastes so good. It's the sweet taste of victory. Same pizza, same place. If you'd have lost the game, it wouldn't have tasted as well. Why? Because you are united by the victory. You're united that you have 
one. You're a part of something that's larger than yourself, and it brings you to this place of emotional euphoria and connection. And so we, as we partake of this meal, it is a foreshadowing and a foretaste of of the final victory over sin and death and pain and betrayal and doubt and disease and evil. And as we partake of this bread and we partake of this cup, it is in an anticipatory event where we think to ourselves, one day we're going to partake of this and forevermore the chains of our earthly foes will be vanquished and never again will sin pester us. Never again will this earthly flesh pull us back. Our fears once and forevermore will be silenced and we will feast in his presence. That's your destination. You're headed to a table. I'm headed to a table, not through my work, not through your work, but through his finished work. So today, we as believers, we look back grateful for his finished work. And we look ahead, grateful, in anticipation for that final victory that he already has purchased for you and for me in his accomplishment upon the cross and the resurrection. What are you bringing to Thanksgiving? Would you put gratitude on that list this morning?